Hello, and welcome to Global's mid-month episode, which we're calling Podlets. I'm your host, Travis Green, and today we are going to look at elections and what it takes to make them successful. To put it simply, elections are one of the fundamental tenets of a liberal democracy. Democracies are built on the idea that individual citizens have a say in who governs them and how. Elections are how we make that happen. Holding elections does not mean a country is democratic. However, no country can be democratic without them. But here's the thing. Elections are incredibly complex processes. They require organization and high levels of technical knowledge. In countries with lots of practice, election day is often uneventful. In countries where democratic norms are on shaky grounds, election mishaps have the possibility of calling into question the entire election and foundation of a government. So what does it take to run a smooth election? And what are some of the consequences when these processes don't work well? Joining me to discuss this topic are two IRI experts. We have with us Patricio Gajardo, currently IRI's resident program director in Guatemala, who also has a lot of experience working on elections in Latin America. We also have Stephanie Rowland, program manager in the Eurasia division, who has worked on elections in a variety of contexts. Both of you have also recently observed elections. Pat, you in El Salvador, and Stephanie, you in Moldova. Thank you both so much for joining us today. So to start us off, why are the most recent elections in Moldova and El Salvador important to each of those countries' democratic futures? And tell us a little bit about how this current election affects the, the region in general. Stephanie, maybe you can start us off. Sure. Um, so Moldova just did a parliamentary election. That was February 24th. It's a one-round election, so it was the day, February 24th. This election was particularly important for Moldova because Moldova had sw has switched electoral systems previously. Uh, it was a straight proportional system, and so that's where all the parties compete. Um, they put forward a party list with all of their candidates, and you just vote for the party. Uh, in the summer of 2017, Moldova switched its electoral system to a mixed system. There's 101 seats in parliament, and half of the parliament will be elected from the party list, so you vote for your party. And the other half, you vote for like a hometown parliamentarian, just the way that we do in the United States, if you, you know, you're a senator from your state. Um, so that would be 51 of them would be hometown heroes <laughs> and 50 from the party list. Um, so a new system that the Moldovan authorities were hoping would be make it more representational. But it is a big change, uh, and it takes a, like a, a political cultural change. And so it, these elections were really important to make sure that Moldova got it right um, administratively and that the Moldovans themselves understood the system well enough to, to kind of participate in it and, and pick their candidate based on party platform kind of for those lists and that guy who's promising guy or gal <laughs> promising the best for you you know as a constituent so that's why these elections were particularly important system-wide politically um the last time moldova had a parliamentary election was 2014 and um, weeks after the election, a massive scandal rocked Moldovan uh, politics. A, a billion dollars went missing from these banks. And Moldova is a very poor country, and a billion dollars is nearly about 15% of the GDP. There were street protests in 2015 following it, and two parties uh, that competed in last month's elections came from those street protests. They're, they're street protests turned parties, now turned governing. You know, the, now they're in, in parliament. Um, and then that the scandal in the post-2014 political system has seen a lot of um, well-established parties in Moldova um, collapse. 
uh, and new parties come about, like these ones from the street, and it was you know a change in government. So it has been a really tumultuous time in the last few years in Moldova, and these elections are happening. It's a really like it's a new touchstone for Moldovan politics. Mm. 2014 was so long ago, and the political system is so different, and the political landscape is so different that these elections and their results and people's participation in them is kind of uh, setting a new baseline for Moldovan politics. Super interesting. And Pat, there's a lot of similarities with the elections that just happened in El Salvador, right? Corruption, party fatigue, um, and kind of the party collapse. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of this election for El Salvador? I think that the February 3rd uh, elections here this year basically was a continuation of the legislative and municipal elections that were held also in March of 2018. The new candidate or the new party basically that was participating in this election was going to be a test for the traditional two-party system almost that El Salvador has had since the 80s. Uh, especially since the first election after the peace accord that happened in 1994, the two-party system, you know, dominated the political scene since then, ARENA from the right and the FMLN from the left. And I think that the party fatigue because of corruption issues and because the political party system did not answer the call of the people and fix, you know, most of the problems that this country has, specifically with corruption and and violence. So this uh, election was important because it was going to test how dissatisfied people were of this system. And that's why it was not very surprisingly that the candidate Nayib Bukele was able to win in the first round of this uh, last process. Great. And we're going to talk a little bit more about party fatigue and failure of parties in a different podcast. But now I'd really like to dig in a little bit more to election administration. Stephanie, you kind of mentioned that there was just a recent change in Moldova. They went from one system to a different one. Ostensibly, that took a lot of background work on the part of the Moldovan authorities. Can you kind of give us a little bit of the background about what needs to happen or what what did happen in Moldova, as an example, for these authorities to make that switch administratively to make sure that the system and that election day went smoothly? So Moldova changed to the mixed system in the summer of 2017. The decision to do so was first taken in parliament. It was a big political decision, and there's quite a bit of controversy on that. And uh, I won't go into that. that that's a very <laughs> Moldovan-specific political discussion. Uh, but once it was in place, there was so much that needed to, to be changed. All the ripple effects, the campaign finance laws, the laws on political party, the electoral uh, code, just so many regulations. So they, they make this change in the summer and the elections are eventually set for February of 2019. So the summer of 2017 to February of 2019. And a lot of changes were delayed because it is a, such an interplay between the, the bureaucratic and technocratic people at the Central Election Commission and, and political pieces that need to take place in committees and parliamentary decisions, um, all while everybody's working on competing against each other in a, in a campaign, right? It is a very intricate dance of politics and technocratic changes. And the, in the Moldova case, there was so much to change and, and you know, even so much time to do it. And it was still quite a mad dash at the end. Just things people hadn't thought about, um, just the different, different pieces, the ripple effect. Um, one piece in particular. So Moldova has a large diaspora community and, and a diaspora community that stays very connected to the country. And so they're still eligible to vote. Under the new mixed system, 
three of the single member districts, those are the ones, the hometown heroes, three of those have been designated for the diaspora community, one in to the east of Moldova, to the Western Europe, and to the United States and Canada and South America. So these are broken up geographically. But how do you know who's on the, those lists? How do you create a, a specific voter list for those constituencies? What identification do those people need to vote? Their passport, their ID card, some of those are expired. Moldova also has very strict campaign finance laws. The goal is to get bad money, dark money, foreign money, however we want to say that, out of out of politics. And so part of the law says that money that's going towards politics needs to be earned in Moldova. You need to make this money in Moldova and spend it on Moldovan politics. So like a Moldovan Sorry. business person sure, in yeah. Canada so they have, can't contribute to a campaign. Correct. The Moldovan diaspora are not allowed to donate. Mm -hmm. So it became very difficult for somebody, you know, a Moldovan living in France mm -hmm. can't really... Uh, represent that constituency, this this Western European Moldovan diaspora constituency, because they can't contribute to their own campaign. So it would just kind of all sorts of hands would be tied. So and and that's sorry that to go to kind of down the <laughs> the rabbit hole on that one specific issue. But when you start to when you make a change that that big, when you make a bit change to the system, there's just so many ripple effects and so many hangers on layers of reforms and changes that need to be made and need to be made well in advance so that both sides that the contestants know how to compete and the voters understand the system that they're working within too. Yeah and so that's a lot of that really shows a lot of the different steps that need to happen when there is a change. Pat maybe you can talk us through some of the milestones you know when things kind of stay static systems wide what are some of the big milestones that need to happen in the lead up to election day. You can totally use El Salvador as, as kind of a case study or a case example on how they did it to demonstrate some of these milestones? Well, first of all, the presidential election, it was very, I will say, easy to run in the sense, you know, that they were coming out from a, a legislative and a municipal si uh, process in 2018. This election process was with four candidates, and basically the people understood very well what they have to mark in the ballot. Although in the Salvadorian system in selecting the legislators, is very complicated. I will say it's one of the most complicated systems uh, in the world. And that's one of the main issues that we need to tackle in the future is that elections need to be as simple as possible so people can participate and, and be comfortable when they go and out and vote. And the system is called uh, preferential vote. It's very, very complicated and it's a system that already taking the the steps on changing it uh, probably in the future. The election commission is in favor of changing it. The electoral reform commission or committee in, in the Congress is uh, also in favor. And the civil society in general are also in favor of changing the system here in Salvador. So both of you have mentioned a couple of different components that there's, you know, there's obviously the political side of things and there's obviously the procedural side of things. It becomes very, very difficult to separate these political decisions impact procedural methods and outcomes and processes, right? So let's look a little bit at some of the responsibilities that the government has. Obviously, a government is run by one of the political parties, usually by one of the parties that's in the running for the election. Then there can be a temptation for one of these parties to use some of the resources the government has to play for their campaign a little bit. So Pat, can you talk a little bit about the role that a government has in making an election not only be perceived as impartial, but really be impartial? Like how, how do governments and election authorities make that come about? There's different ways to look at that. If I have to t only talk about El Salvador, El Salvador basically has a party that is in control of the government 
but the election commission, the five members of the election commissions are from different parties. So you have three members from the three parties that obtained the most votes in the past election, and then you have two other members that are selected by the courts. So in the face of the people, I will say the election commission is seen not independent, but is seen as a process that is balanced by the main political parties are are in the country. Gotcha. Is that is there any similarities with Moldova? Yeah. So I mean you hit it on the head that there is this temptation to use this platform. They are contenders. They're a political party of this government, right? And if you have it, in-office legitimacy is a great thing to run on. You've paved the roads, you've improved school, you know, social spending, etc. But the, it can create this unfair playing field. A number of politicians who were in office um, stood as candidates again in this election, but kind of recuse themselves from their official positions, step down and things like that. Mayors as well, if they were high-ranking members of their parties and they were part of the campaign, they kind of stepped away from their day jobs for this. And then I, I agree with the experience where, yes, the government has this platform, but there are these other bodies and these other platforms that the different parties, including the opposition, are able to be present. Um, the Central Election Commission in Moldova is one of those. So the government is the democratic government, the head of the Central Election Commission. She's from the Communist Party. There's a socialist representative. Each of the parties are represented on these bodies. And it's almost the responsibility of these parties to hold the government accountable. One of the things, at least here at IRI, that we do a lot of is electoral observations. And observation is done through a lot of different ways. There's a lot of different ways that people can be observers. There's international, there's local. Pat, could you talk a little bit about what is an observer, who can be an observer, and what what does this look like in practice? An electoral observation promotes compliance, I will say, with the legal framework and usually deters questionable you know, activities and conflict of an election that we observe. It's an integrity safeguard. It provides, you know, checks and balances, protects, you know, the honesty maybe of the election commission and also provides, you know, that the participation of political parties is good and the candidates and the other groups are comfortable that you will have independent monitors. Additionally, you know, at the end of the day, you know, monitors do not directly prevent electoral fraud or any other issues, but they are there, you know, to record and to report such uh, problems or, or how the system or the process is going. So it is important and, and also it depends, you know, if the election commission or the government of a country will request the presence of international observers or accredited local observers to uh, also be part of the process. Just adding to what um, Patricio said, it's important to note the different types of observers. So when IRI observes an election, observe is the verb that we use. We're an international organization that is there to observe the process. And we note findings and give recommendations. We do not intervene in the process. There are different groups, people who monitor the election. I'll give you a local NGO or, or something like that, a regional organization, and they can step in and they say, oh, why didn't you count those ballots and things like that. There's a little bit more intervention, interaction with the process. And then there's domestic observers. And we always remember that we're an international organization there as a guest. The domestic observers, they are citizens. This is their election too. This is their vote that they're trying to secure. So they, they have a lot more skin in the game. They usually have 100% coverage, so they will have somebody at every polling station. And so they have eyes on every vote cast. Um, the international observers, we come with a, the experience of watching elections all around the world and kind of this zoomed out experience. 
it's good to have both somebody who's very in the weeds in the details of that country and, and somebody coming in as from an international organization. And, and then, as Patricio mentioned, the party observers. Each party is allowed to have a registered observer at each polling station. And in Moldova, I don't know if it's the case around the world, in Moldova, each party is allowed to have a legal representative at each polling station who is allowed to submit complaints. And so, you know, each candidate almost has a voice in the room and has a set of eyes in the room to make sure that the process, you know, that they're not disadvantaged in the process. Uh, you're right on, on saying that national or domestic observers, you know, are in the country, of course, they're, they're citizens of that country. And the difference of uh, even in, in international standards, you have long-term observers and short-term observers. And the long-term observers basically will have more time to observe you know, and assess the electoral administration, the implementation of the law, the regulations, the conduct of the campaign. It's kind of like the core group of the observers are going to be providing more information to the short-term observers that are that are arriving in a country, you know, a week or days before the election. And those are more like they basically have a one-day training and then they just go out to the different places in the country or around the country to report on the, the finding of the election day. Building on what Patricio said, really important to note the difference between long-term observers and short-term observers. For our recent observation mission in Moldova, we had a team of long-term observers who were on the ground 12 weeks before election day. Elections are way bigger than election day itself. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, those 12 hours where people are allowed to cast the vote and the, the you know, that, that's just the one episode. That's just, so you have to take a broader view to see just how this election, kind of we call it the election environment, the landscape, how that takes place. So we want to make sure that we're, we're, observing the whole process as parties prepare as candidates start being identified and you know as campaign messaging comes about billboards go up (laughs) you see the tone on tv change you know the political news changes and everything because if you just come in on election day you've already missed most of the story if i have to add one just one thing i think that we need to stress the issue of the follow-up of the recommendations that any election observation mission Uh, provides to a country X. One of the flaws that we have as international observers and and even as national observers or domestic observers is that you don't follow up the recommendations that you do in one election and then you go back five years afterwards and they have not done anything to change them. So one of the things that we need to consider when we do observe elections is to provide at least an amount of funds to do some work with the election commission or with the Congress people that are going to follow up or that we are going to insist that those recommendations can take place for the next election process. Right, so just making sure that the process itself is truly iterative and that it is moving forward. In addition to having observers there before election day, it's also important to watch the post-election process. This was really important to us for the Moldova mission. Last spring, Moldova had they had snap elections in the capital for the mayor, and the results of these elections were invalidated by the constitutional court, which drew large protests and really caused a lot of people to lose faith in the electoral process. And so when we were planning our electoral mission, we knew that we wanted to get observers on the ground early to just catch lead up to the campaign, but then to keep people on the ground for a few weeks after the election, as things got validated, as complaints were filed, as the court process went through, and up until the whole election was was validated. Like we said, we can't pack up and leave just after the votes have been counted. You gotta watch the whole process through. 
your comment about faith in the process is really, really key, right? Really, faith in the process is what gives elections credibility to begin with, right? People believe that doing this is worthwhile and matters and is going someplace. So maybe we can spend a little bit of time kind of on the last question to look at what happens when, you know, people lose that faith or the process lets people's faith down. What impact does that have on citizens' perceptions of their elections or even on citizens' perceptions of what their democracy is like when electoral commissions are not able to really make good on that faith that people have given it? I will say that there are many implications that will not only affect the election commission, but also the government, political parties, and I will say the political system in general. We cannot blame only the election commission sometimes because they did not comply with the date of the election. The election commission also also depends you know, on receiving the budget on time to organize this election. Uh, sometimes we tend to blame one sector or one actor of this process, and sometimes there are many actors that are involved in why an election did not go through. So the impact, I will say, in the voters and in the citizens in general is huge because that, again, provides, you know, another process against democracy in general. And people basically stop believing that the democratic process is the process that we do have to follow to have better and strengthen and strengthen our democracies. Yeah, I would agree. I would say, you know, in in many countries like in the United States, like sovereignty lies with the citizens. It's the we the people, right? And on election day is when they get to flex we the people. Anything that looks to either not listen to somebody's vote or tamper with their vote or somehow shuttle them down, you know, like direct their vote some way really takes away that power of, of a citizen. And citizens feel that, they get that. And the ripple effects can be, you know, distrust in future governments, distrust in future elections, low, lower voter turnout. So election administration, where often it's really like, okay, you put the piece of paper here and then this person signs in and it seems very step by step and nuts and bolts, but it's really important to citizens trust in their state. And in addition to the citizens, it's the, you know, the contenders of the election too. If, if there's tampering, every country needs a healthy opposition, you know, but if, if, if they don't believe that the process was by the book, they can take the football and go home, you know, and they can boycott future governing, which again, just leads to more this, this cycle of being disaffected. So if maybe hearing from each of you, if you had one takeaway, what is a key component for a healthy election? If you had to boil it down to kind of like, what is the, the secret ingredient for a good election? I would say for, for an election administration or a commission, the best work that they have done is when they comply with all their functions that are provided in the electoral cycle, especially on the electoral calendar. If they respect the electoral calendar and are inclusive with all political parties and the voters, you know, participate in the process in a peaceful way, then at the end of the day, you will have an election commission that responded to the needs of the people and also of the electoral process. They also, as an election commission, have to be prepared for the whole cycle of election. Uh, there's a lot of planning, there's a lot of training, a lot of information to voter and civic education processes. There is a registration process. So all those things in, in the pre-electoral process the nomination, the nomination of the of the candidates, the campaign process, uh, the voting, and the results of the of the electoral process, and then that's not the end of the any election commission because then in five more years you're also going to have an election again. So the lessons learned, the review of the process, the reforms for the next process, those are very important timelines that every election commission has to go through. Stephanie. 
Yeah, if I said that there was one secret ingredient for election administration, I would say transparency. Focused on communication and trust building. Like this change in Moldova, there was so much that needed to get changed in Moldova. All the follow-on legislation and regulations. And it's a lot for parties to take in. It's a lot for voters to take in. And so and, and the more education and the more communication that can happen, people will invest in the system. They trust the system. They understand it's in their best interest. Nobody's trying to pull anything over on anybody. And so, yeah, it would be having a transparent election administration that's focused on communication and trust. Great. Well, we will wrap it up with that. Patricia Gajardo, Stephanie Rowland, thank you so much for joining us on Global today. Once again, thanks to Pat and Stephanie for speaking with us today. Listeners, we want to know what you think of the show. Email us your feedback at podcast.iri.org. And please make sure to go to wherever you download your podcast and leave us a review. Next podcast, we are talking about Nigeria. As we mentioned last episode on El Salvador, the elections in Nigeria were postponed at 3 a.m. on election day. We have stories from on the ground and guests will be talking about how the country got to a place where they could not administer elections on voting day. Until next time, I'm Travis Green and thanks for listening to Global.